Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Tesco, we have amazing offers for you this Christmas. Like our Board Be approved Tesco Finest Irish Whole and Half Leg of Lamb, now half price. Or give yourself a treat. Starburst Fruity Chews 4-pack 180 gram, a range of Hunky Dory's Sharing Crisps, or My Body 1 litre bottles, and more, any 5 for 5 euro. And check out our brilliant wine offers. Casiero del Diablo Cabernet Sauvignon, Campo Viejo Tempranillo, or Torres Venusol, 6 bottles for 40 euro. Tesco, every little helps. Enjoy alcohol responsibly. So what was your favourite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam with the snorkelling and the helicopter ride. The No. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favourite thing was Radio Wolfgang. Ah. What's that? The app? You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. Okay, cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite? Still, yeah. That's, it's just, you're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream. Right. The Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. I think I was let off lightly. Did you save your time here? I got to know this motley crew quite well. So when they stayed, I stayed. So, do you still trust me with the needle? I think what one can really say is the point about the human exploration of the world around us, and I'm thinking of things as different as not only science but poetry and music, is completely open-ended. Collectively, one gets a sense that we're on a voyage of exploration, and if there are alien species, then I suspect they may be further ahead on the curve or behind, but in a certain sense, we'll still be talking a common language. You've been in my life so long. I can't remember anything else. Now do something for me. It's easy. Just... Just do what you do. 
Don't be afraid. I'm part of the family. It's hard, particularly since there is no rigorous definition of life, even for biologists, to design experiments that are designed to find life not as we know it. That's, that's a persistent problem. In the end, what humans are sort of defined by very, very widely is this incredible curiosity about the way the world is. I don't hear anybody saying nothing. I'm thinking. Unless somebody has got a better idea, we'll proceed with Dallas's plan. What? And then they'll blame the others? <laughs> no, you're out of your mind. You got a better idea? Yes. I said that we abandoned the ship. I think we're fascinated by the question of whether or not there are extraterrestrials out there because we're fascinated by the question of what is our place in the universe. I think I know my place. It's hosting Science-ish. Welcome to the show. I'm Rick Edwards. I'm joined, as ever, by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. There he is. So, I mean, you probably know how this show works by now, but if you don't, I'll tell you anyway. We look at the science within fiction, and we unpick it and try and work out how much of it uh, we believe. And then we ask three questions based on the source material. The source material, in this case... Oh, I've missed out. I've got to do a plug. I forgot to do the newsletter plug. Should I do uh, the newsletter plug? Yeah, yeah, do it, plug. do it. I mean, um, it hardly needs plugging. It pretty much sells itself. Yeah, it does a bit. Did you get the science Edition newsletter of last week? I did. Devoured it. Mm, literally. Printed it out <laughs> printed and ate it. Printed it out and ate it. Yeah. <laughs> but if you go to radiowolfgang.com and sign up, then you will get the newsletter. And also, the first 100 people get science Edition prints. Exclusive science Edition prints. I imagine, I mean, I'm hoping some of them have gone. Surely some of them have been snapped you'd, up, haven't they? You'd think in the last month they'd all gone, wouldn't you? So something that I got quite excited about with the newsletter is I got an email from Hannah last night saying that there's going to be a comic strip. So you're going to get three cells of, the, of a comic with each newsletter starring us, Brooks. Uh, which <laughs> is, yeah, I mean, Whoa. great news. And so I came in quite excited to, to see that. And Hannah's just shown it to me. And the depiction of me, I mean... Disturbing Yeah, is possibly a word I'd use. Yeah, I've put on a bit. I've put yeah, on a lot. Yeah. I've got sort of a furrowed face. Weird eyes. Kind of very weird eyes, a weird mouth. And you're going to put that on your Twitter profile? I don't think so. No. <laughs> but, you know, it's nice to have a, a comic dedicated to us. There's a tiny, there's a sort of hint of you in the second cell. Is that, we, right? yeah, and, and Is you, that all you, they're prepared to show? Yeah, you look a like big a big reveal coming up next month, maybe. Yeah. Now, our subject matter for this episode is alien. because we know how much you enjoyed space last love, time, Michael. We're I love you, space. giving you more space, <laughs> but this time with added aliens. Fantastic. I'm assuming you uh, you have seen the Ridley Scott classic. I have, I have seen it several times. Love it every time. Wonderful, wonderful film. It's a great piece of filmmaking. Well done, Ridley, if you're listening. <laughs> of course he is. Ridley? <laughs> it was made in 1979, and if you think about that, I mean, all of the effects stand up. 
amazing. Yeah, you say that actually, but my my children. Oh, you think they it. don't? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> no, no, I think they do, and I think it's still scary. But my children saw a clip, the clip where uh, the alien comes out of John Hurt's stomach. Yeah, which is brilliant. Uh, which is brilliant, and then it scuttles away, and they like basically burst out laughing and said it's like a puppet. Ah, now I would say that the scuttle away is not. <laughs> Perfect. It sort of looks. <laughs> it looks like it's got a little skateboard. It's got a string yeah. that somebody's just pulling on it. Yeah, yeah true. which is probably what's happening. Yeah, but yeah. The, the the actual when it comes out, yeah, I know it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. They didn't laugh at that bit, and they actually refused to watch the whole film because they said it was just too scary and horrible. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. What do they know? In your children's faces. Yes. I don't know if they're interested, but it got the Oscar for special effects. Yeah, they probably laugh at that as well. Mm. Okay, fine. <laughs> do you know who the uh, who the special effects on the alien and stuff were designed by? No. A man called H.R. Geiger. All oh, right. Um, who was a, a Swiss surrealist artist. Did he do them at his counter? <laughs> so I think we can get straight into asking our first question. There's only one way to start this. Are we alone or is alien out there or an alien? And we asked the SETI Institute's senior astronomer, Dr. Seth Shostak. At this point, I think it has to be said straight out that we have no compelling evidence for any biology, any life beyond Earth. Now, that isn't to say it isn't there. What it means is we haven't found it. <laughs> and, and mostly, in my opinion, because we haven't really looked very carefully yet. Even for Mars, we've done a little bit of exploration of the planet, but we haven't actually dug under the dirt to see if there's some sort of microbes down there. We haven't even done that. I think all of that's going to happen in the next 20 years simply because of our increased capability to do experiments. And I also think that in the next 20 years, it's uh, not improbable that we'll find a signal that'll tell us not only is there biology out there, but there's also intelligent biology. And the reason I think that is maybe just wishful thinking because it's the nature of my job. But honestly, I think it's because we now know that in our own galaxy, there are at least tens of billions of planets that are somewhat cousin to the Earth. Dallas, not that box. Dallas? You're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've lost the signal. You know, just about every week you read something in the newspapers uh, that's germane to the question of, is there life out there? But, you know, if you sort of step back from all those weekly news reports, you see that all those stories are really just one of three stories about how we're looking for life. And the first story is just we're looking for life by, you know, sending rockets to the other parts of our solar system and looking for it, or at least we will be doing that sort of thing. We've already sent plenty of rockets. Okay, so that's horse number one. The second horse in, in this race to find extraterrestrial life is to build big telescopes that could examine the atmospheres of planets around other stars and see, for example, if they had oxygen in their atmosphere, which might be a tip-off to, you know, extraterrestrial plants at least. We're considering doing that. There have been a lot of proposals. We haven't built one yet, but that's a money issue. The third horse in the race is, of course, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and that's just to use big antennas the way Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact and try and eavesdrop on radio transmissions from aliens that are smart enough to build a radio transmitter. Hey, we all hear that? 
that, Lambert. Sound like any radio signal I've heard. Voice. First of all, I really like the sound of Dr. Seth. <laughs> great voice, great attitude. Yeah, yeah. He's an Good amazing pop guy. culture references. <laughs> Everything I look for in a scientist, really. So we've got a few different options as to how we might potentially make contact with aliens. Which method would your money be on, Michael? Well, it's interesting. So I, uh, I can tell you a great story now. Um, well, I, I think I've, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> I've seen Seth Shostak have a stand-up fight, argument, almost end into a fight. Really? Over whether we should actually contact aliens or not. I was at a conference of the Royal Society and he and David Brin had a massive disagreement about whether you should like broadcast signals so that aliens might you know, mm. see we're out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Seth was all in favour of it because Seth is an optimist. He thinks aliens are going to be nice. And there's David Brin, who's yeah, a scientist. Nice fiction like writer. us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice like <laughs> Seth. He's the nicest guy in the world. And he thinks everyone's going to be nice. And he obviously hasn't seen the film Alien. <laughs> <laughs> so SETI, this SETI thing that he runs, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is a kind of hobbyist kind of thing, really. It's not, it doesn't get government funding. It's all funded by you know, people who, who want to find aliens. So you just look for radio signals, basically. You look for signals in the sky and uh, and hope that you'll see something. But it's incredibly difficult to search all of the sky. It's big, isn't it? It is Famously big. big. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the, um, the, there have been a few close calls. The, there's the wow signal in the, I can't, was it late 60s or uh, early 70s? 1977. In fact, it was August the 15th, 1977. Oh, which someone's was done their homework. The night that Elvis died. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. And you think the aliens were gutted, yeah. no, just yeah. send you a quick... Yeah. Condolence <laughs> message. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> or he was taken up. Mm. Who knows? But the the thing about the wow signal, and correct me if I'm wrong, which I may be, has been known, no one's really been able to explain what its origin is. No, they? so this is a, it's a radio signal that came in. It looked exactly like we'd expect, or we were expecting the thing. It was a 1420 megahertz, which is the frequency of uh, the vibration of hydrogen molecules. Hydrogen, the most common molecule in the universe. So if you're going to signal to somebody else, you know, that might be a number that they recognize. And it came in and then it disappeared and we never saw anything else again. So this guy, Jerry Amon, saw it. He was working on the telescope at the time. He saw this big signal in the printout from the computer. He wrote WOW next to it because it looked exactly like what everyone had been looking for. And that's why it became known as the WOW signal. And we've never been able to explain it. They look for military satellites, you know, uh, normal satellites. It came from an empty patch of sky where there are no stars. And, and, um, and they just have n- nobody's ever been able to explain it. Although there was a guy this year who says that it might have been comets that have been discovered since yeah, I think the, I read the thing that, came yeah. in. That seems like a bit of a long shot as well. And the comets would give out hydrogen gas, so, so there mm. might be a peak signal of hydrogen. But it's still unexplained officially. Uh, and so um, what's, the, what's the current kind of party line from SETI on it, what would they say? All you can say, all, all that Seth would say is that it's an unexplained thing. I mean, it happened once, there's no mm. repeat, it's really hard to say anything about it. Um, Presumably we've looked in that area again yeah, 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 a bunch of times. Yeah, we've looked a bunch of times and people have been looking for, you know, over sort of 30 years now, 40 years almost. But, you know, it's not much of a signal if it's just that one beep, mm. effectively. I mean, it's a lazy alien at best. Yeah, if he's only sending yeah. out one signal, they're like, ah, fuck it. 
<laughs> Didn't get anything back from that guy. Well, it it, it doesn't up. seem like a deliberate communication, although mm. maybe it was just a passing alien ship as it passed. You know, we, we heard a beep. Maybe it was reversing. I'd love to hear you do a full lecture on that. <laughs> maybe it was a passing alien ship and we just, just, a, just a beep. Guys, guys? <laughs> oh, you want your money back. Okay, fine. Don't be afraid. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. We step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship to teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate. We know full well that our planet and all its inhabitants are but a small part of this immense universe that surrounds us and it is with humility and hope that we take this step. We've been sending stuff out as well, just in case. Yeah, so so we sent stuff out on the Voyager probes, a thing called the Golden Record, Mm. where we had... um, You know, it was one of those things where... It probably seemed like a really good idea in the 1970s to put out a, an album into space, which is effectively what it is. So 70s. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they even said it with like a cartridge with a needle, you know, that you could play this record mm. as if aliens, aliens were like, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. Yeah, as if aliens wouldn't have their own record needles. <laughs> of course they've got them. <laughs> they've probably moved on. Um, and, uh, and it has things like, you know, songs from the earth and different periods and, and people talking, uh, some sort of descriptions of what humans are like, various things that, that might give you some indication of our culture and, and stuff. But it's that Da Vinci picture, isn't there? Yeah, mm. yeah. But I'm not sure anybody's picking it up. And the Voyager probes are now well outside our solar system. So, but I think it's something like you know, it's, it's 140 light years until they hit anything decent. Yeah. So there's nobody's going to pick it up for a while. Yeah. Well. So still, you know, and again, there. you know, David Brin would say it's a dangerous thing to do because if somebody does pick it up, they'll realise there's life forms on Earth and they might want to come and take it over because it's a habitable planet. Or they might love the music. And then when they arrive, be very disappointed that <laughs> yeah. things have moved on. <laughs> They're like, what's all this garage? Um, the thing that's always fascinated me since I, was, uh, and since I was very young, and particularly since in my further maths class, um, a boy called Sanjay, who was sort of borderline genius, got permission from our maths teacher um, to stand up <laughs> for half an hour and write a load of equations on the board that he said demonstrated that there definitely was um, extraterrestrial life, which is a really glorious moment in my life. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And it seemed quite plausible. And I think, essentially, he was sort of nicking Drake's equation. Right, But yeah. we didn't know that. Um, so it seemed more impressive. So this is the idea that you can sort of work out the mathematical probability of finding life somewhere by... Yeah, summing together a whole load of factors. So it's like the the birth rate of stars in our galaxy, the fraction of stars that have a planet, number of planets per solar system that might harbour life, fraction of the planets that spawn life, and then the fraction of planets with life that involves to be intelligent. So, so this it's is, a whole sort of mess of stuff. It's a nice equation, but all of the variables are guesswork. Yeah. Apart from the, like the number of stars that are being born and the number of yeah, planets maybe. I mean, exactly. So so since we've started doing better astronomy, because I think that was 1961 or something he came mm. up with that, since we started doing better astronomy, we have a better idea of how many of these stars exist, you know, which which, which stars are worth looking at, which aren't, and we've got a better sort of sense of, of what the population is. But beyond that, we don't really know anything. 
Yeah, which I think we're going to be saying quite a lot, aren't we? <laughs> Not really, sure. <laughs> but there are billions, as Seth said, there are billions of planets that are maybe in a sort of habitable zone around a star, aren't there? Yeah, but I mean, this idea of the habitable zone is questionable as well. It's like, how do you define it? We're only defining it in terms of what we think. And, and I know there are lots of people who think that Earth is absolutely unique and it's just like, you know, this, this phrase, the lucky planet, the one that just happened to be exactly right and, and had all these, um, all the conditions were perfect. And there's no reason to think that any other planet actually necessarily has one. That does feel arrogant, though, doesn't it? Yeah. But there's I quite billions, like it. There's billions of planets. Yeah. And we're on the lucky one. We hit the jackpot. Mm. There are lots of people who don't believe that there is anything out there. One of whom is a guy I think lectured me while I was at university, but I genuinely can't be sure because my recollection is quite hazy. Um, <laughs> Professor Simon Conway Morris, who may or may not have lectured me. He remembers um, you fondly. <laughs> of course he does. Uh, from the University of Cambridge. One of the things which is now very clear is that our solar system is actually relatively young. It's about four and a half billion years old. Whereas we have good reason to think that many other solar systems in our galaxy alone are much, much older than ours. And in principle, they have a head start on us of perhaps two to three billion years. So if that's the case, then surely by now we would have been visited. And the fossil record, for example, might have some trace of that. But so far, nothing. Correspondingly, what's referred to as a Fermi paradox. And this so-called great silence is very, very puzzling indeed. It either means perhaps there's nothing there at all, which is not impossible, or alternatively, and this interests scientists very much, we're basically looking in the wrong place. And that's a tantalising set of alternatives. I have no idea. My private hunch is, in fact, paradoxically, we are completely alone. If, in principle, life evolves, which it does, if, in principle, there are many habitable planets, which there seem to be, if, in principle, intelligence is an inevitability, again, convergent evolution strongly suggests that, if, in principle, some of these planets have been evolving for much longer than we've had the current opportunities, then something here doesn't quite add up. No, Professor Simons, something doesn't quite add up. Fermi paradox that he mentions that that is basically even if you plug in very conservative values to Drake's equation you end up with there should be quite a lot of life out there yeah but we haven't seen any evidence of it whatsoever that's the paradox yeah right? so so the the big question is where is everybody yeah you know if if there's all this life in the universe intelligent life that sh- you know will have evolved technology that can travel um where are they all and also, I suppose, if we're quite a young system, if we're four and a half billion years old and, and there are lots of other solar systems that are a lot older, then you would assume that they would have, if they had developed technology, they would be that far ahead of us and therefore able potentially to reach us. Yeah, I mean, but it all depends on whether you think we're worth 
coming to, doesn't it? I mean, are we really that attractive that, that people would travel across the, the galaxy or the universe to come and see us? Or have they got their own business to get on with? It's quite, actually, it's a very humbling thought that there's loads of aliens sort of looking at us and we're just one of those planets that go, nah. Uh, and there's loads of really good ones out yeah, there. Yeah. And they're, they're going full well, steam like ahead. The, the Magaloof of planets, yeah. aren't we? It's like nobody really wants to go there, do they? But I mean, the other, the other thing, and, and this is another factor that's in the Drake equation, is that if you have a civilization that develops enough technology, then the theory is that actually they tend to destroy themselves. So you develop amazing technology, uh, which always involves some kind of weapons or climate degradation or something, and you end up just wiping yourself out before you've got the chance to really do proper interstellar travel. And so they have to coincide with us being sort of able to detect them and, and them not wiping themselves out. That's really cool. I'd never, I'd never heard that. I like that idea that the, any life is being held back by its own technology because yeah. it will destroy itself yeah. and therefore not get to the stage where it can travel. Yeah. Yeah. Another obvious limiting factor is we're sort of basing all of our assumptions on our earth and our life yeah and so we're kind of looking at a sample size of one and then extrapolating out yeah but there is uh, a possibility that there is just something totally different yeah to us that won't fit any of our criteria so th- this is the, the the thing is that that all our sort of calculations of what habitable zone is and everything else depends on us talking about water oxygen and carbon Mm. as being you know the essential things for life and actually you can argue that that that's one particular kind of life which is the one we're familiar with you know we're a carbon-based life form there might be silicon-based life forms and then you've got the idea that you could have um, um the atmosphere of venus is basically sulfuric acid and you could have sort of acid based life forms living in that atmosphere and like alien yeah so, so there's all kinds of um, different possibilities. Very hard for us to imagine them, though, because we're so sort of tied in with the whole carbon-oxygen thing. And the other something else that, that people have talked about is actually technology-based life. So just as we talk about post-humans and you know, cyborgs and, and sort of melding with silicon-based technology, they're saying like another advanced civilization somewhere else in the universe might well have just ditched the whole organic thing and just become totally kind of you know, cyber. Again, how would you detect that kind of life form? Let's say that we did find alien. Is is there any way that we can know what it would be like? To that, I think, is our, our second question. What would that alien look like? Uh, Professor Simon again. The general idea is it would be literally alien. It would be sort of blobs of glue or sort of something which is sort of crepuscular, something living in the shadows of our imagination. Whereas in point of fact, I think so far as an Earth-like planet is concerned, life would be rather depressingly similar to the life we see on this planet. And why should that be so? Well, effectively because, first of all, it will have evolved. But the other thing we know, I think, fairly clearly now is that evolution is not entirely open-ended. In other words, there are certain ways of doing things which really work much, much better than other ways. So if I want to walk, if I want to swim, if I want to fly, there are various alternatives, but they're relatively limited. Correspondingly, if we look at the molecular biology, we find that there are some proteins, for instance, those which carry oxygen in the blood. And again, there are several choices, but not as many as you might first expect. And all of this revolves around the phenomena we call evolutionary convergence. The idea is that the number of endpoints, if you like, for instance, the way you can look, the way you see, the way you use vision, it turns out that the camera eye, the sort of eyes which we use and octopus use, are extremely efficient as devices for vision. But they've clearly evolved independently a number of times. Then beyond that, 
presumably the animal's got to have some ability to manipulate things, to make tools. And it turns out again, in fact, and it's quite a long, complex story, but there are various routes to which we became bipedal on two legs, the way we are able to manipulate our hands and so forth. And these two are also convergent. They're things which have evolved a number of times independently. So I think the likelihood in the end is that something like a human, it'll be roughly two metres high, it will probably be bipedal, it could have four legs and two hands, I don't mind especially. It might at first seem very alien, but in point of fact, to the first approximation, it must have a large brain, it must be warm-blooded, it will have a biochemistry which will be eerily similar to ours, and in combination, we would be happy to call it a humanoid. I like the way he says that. Eerily. It would be eerie. If it's that humanoid, it would be extremely eerie. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, that scene at the end of Alien where the thing is outside the spacecraft and she's sort of trying to eject it, and there's a moment where you see its full silhouette mm. in space and it looks like a guy in a suit, yeah. like with a big tail and a big head. And you're Which like, it oh, might that... be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just looks too human. And mm. it's like, I, I was, I'm always disappointed by that because all yeah, the rest of the you things mean. you see, you think, God, this is a horrible, horrible, completely different kind of mm. thing. And then it just looks like, a, you know, it's evolved to be basically like a, a nasty Komodo dragon kind of thing. And it's, it's a bit too terrestrial. Mm. Well, I'm sorry that I'm really disappointed <laughs> you at that stage. Disappoint me on so many levels. <laughs> Take it up with old Geiger and his counter. <laughs> <laughs> what I really enjoyed from... Simon there and I think this is where I got my my love of convergent evolution was from him in the first place <laughs> uh, of course place. it would be um, I'm just a big big fan of it are you huge huge fan I like the fact that stuff sort of separates off and then gradually yeah. just starts creeping back it's so, weirdly comforting somehow very comforting you sort of go ah oh, there so is even like, if it goes really horribly wrong we'll get back on track the and it'll source be fine. of the sort of a right way of doing it guys <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you just yeah. need to spend a bit of time evolving <laughs> yeah and yeah. you'll get there do you buy what Simon was saying there about the fact that they will likely be humanoid? Yeah, I, I, I do, actually. If you're talking about intelligence and ability to sort of travel through interstellar space, then as intelligent as, say, something like an octopus is, I don't see octopuses particularly trying to get off the planet in the same way that humans are. So, Have you not seen that footage of the octopus that escapes from its tank? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the one where it just yeah. like slithers across and then yeah. goes down a, a wastepipe. Amazing. That thing is not an idiot. No, and the worst thing about that whole thing was, again, tangential, is that the place, the, what, what they call the aquarium where it was kept, then said, right, we're going to like tighten security on the other octopus, which I think is outrageous because no. they should be saying clearly, it up. clearly, this thing wants to get out and is intelligent and knows how to do it, and we're just going to tighten security. How inhuman is that? But also, didn't they, um, uh, in Octopus, uh, didn't they say that um, <laughs> there had been evidence of it slipping out of its tank yeah. and going into other tanks to eat crabs <laughs> and then going back in? I dom. mean, I love octopuses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, octopi. Octopi. Yeah, but it's, octopuses sounds better, doesn't it? No, octopi sounds better. Well, you right. said octopuses earlier. And I did, did I? I didn't pull you up on it. Damn. It's natural. You want to say octopuses. Okay. Everyone does. All right. I admit it. I've got a problem. But the, the I guess the, the point that you were... <laughs> anyway, I was... You, you, making... you were desperately trying to make <laughs> was that... that you can evolve different forms of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. And, and clearly, you know, we have on this planet lots of different forms of intelligence. But it's something about the human ability to manipulate the environment very, very strongly means that we are the ones who are you know, getting off the planet, going into space. So I think if that's true, if evolution works the same everywhere in the universe, it's likely that the species we meet, the alien species we meet, will have something very human about them. 
so so are you saying that as well as there being a kind of physical convergent evolution you might also have a kind of intelligence convergence i think so and, and you don't even need to say that you know intelligence will converge but the kind of intelligence that that looks to sort of explore and get out and go mm. somewhere else and, and manipulate its environment very strongly is it seems to me going to have many human like traits physically and sort of in intelligence is it inevitable that intelligence evolves yeah i think so because it's such a good way of surviving mm. so you know you can you know we see all these traits evolve um, in the natural world, so like you know, the fish that live in the Antarctic and Arctic oceans evolve antifreezes in their blood, and through lots of different mechanisms as well. It's, it happened like four different times in four different ways, and that's a survival mechanism. And I think intelligence is also a survival mechanism. You yeah. learn how to to predict what's going to happen in your environment. You you learn how to make shelter. You learn how to overcome you know all the problems that you might face. And intelligence is just an incredible tool for survival. It's working out pretty well for me. Yeah, well, I can I'm see doing that. doing absolutely fine. One, one thing that I guess we know aliens won't be is human parasites, uh, as they are in, in the film Alien. It occurs to me, I didn't really do a synopsis of the film, but I feel like everyone's seen it, haven't they? Yeah, and I if mean, you haven't very, seen it, go and watch it. Go and watch it very briefly. They're on a mining ship. They're going home to Earth. They get a signal that they think is a distress signal. They go and have a look. They find this kind of massive room full of alien eggs, and uh, one hatches... They take it back onto a ship. Oh, dear. Well, it attaches itself bit, to John Hurt's yeah, face, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, should have done a bit of quarantine, which Sigourney Weaver's very unhappy about. Yeah. Um, they take it on board the ship. Big mistake, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. Why? She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon. It uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. SOS. I don't know. Human. Unknown. Can't see a goddamn thing. Ash, can you see this? I've never seen anything like it. How do we know that we're not going to find a human parasite? Because they didn't co-evolve with us. So all the parasites that we have, or any sort of terrestrial parasite, basically co-evolves with its host. And so you learn to exploit that thing that's right next to you. And so this alien egg takes John Hurt's biology and uses it to the max... And it wouldn't have been or shouldn't have been adapted to be able to do that. Although I think you could argue that maybe in, you know, previous, you know, if you go back to the prequel, like Prometheus, for instance. Which you really shouldn't, by the way. <laughs> you could argue that, you know, maybe there were other human-like creatures around. So, so maybe its biology wasn't that different. Obviously, the thing that I've always wondered is, OK, let's say we meet extraterrestrial life. Then what happens? What would that mean for us? here on Earth, and that's a question that we put to Dr. Seth. What happens if tonight, next week, next year, whatever, we pick up a signal and, you know, this is the real deal, that it actually is E.T. on the air? You know, how does that affect anybody? I mean, the first question a lot of people would ask, at least in this country, is, would you even tell us? And I can assure you that we would do that. In fact, we couldn't help ourselves. There's no policy of secrecy. Now, what does that do? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that it destroys humanity. A lot of 
people in America seem to think there would be rioting in the streets. I doubt that. I, I think that the real reaction would be one of curiosity to know more. Can we figure out anything they might be saying? That kind of thing. In the long term, it kind of calibrates our own society. I mean, now we know, okay, humans are special on this planet. Our culture is special, but we're not unique. I think that SETI indeed can promise to complete the Copernican revolution. All that means is that, you know, Copernicus came along and said, Aristotle was wrong. All you people who think that the Earth is the center of everything here in the solar system are wrong. Okay, so, you know, the Earth, uh, the Sun doesn't go around the Earth, the Earth goes around the Sun, and that sort of thing. And, you know, that didn't change most people's job descriptions, but it did change our perception of how important we were, because now we were just another planet, maybe no more important than Mars or Jupiter, that was going around the Sun. And uh, so I think, again, you know, philosophically, it, it had the kind of impact that Darwin's origin of species did when it showed that, well, you know, we're not any more special than any other creature. We, we're just the product of evolution. And while that might not change your uh, daily interactions at the office, at uh, the back of your mind, it does make a difference. So what... Dr. Seth is saying is that it will just give us a bit more context to human existence. Yeah, I'm, I think he's sort of slightly underplaying the significance of it. I think he is, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard somebody else, Martin Rees says it would be the most significant discovery we've ever made if we're not alone in the universe. Of course it would. I think I think and it would. So, yeah. so the idea that you sit in the office and, and somebody casually says, oh yeah, alien life, they discovered it, yeah. And then everyone's just back to work. I guess if they're not coming over for a holiday if they're staying on their planet then yeah. maybe that makes slightly but you know what that is impact. the big thing isn't it because it once we discover them we will pester them yeah, won't we yeah. we'll, we'll come be and send, stay. sending out Guys, signals come and stay <laughs> <laughs> we've got plenty of room come on with all of this said you know maybe maybe there is life out there maybe we'll be able to make contact should we there are obviously those who believe that we have already made contact and the aliens are among us and picking people out at random and then being a bit naughty with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, I mean, I'm slightly loath for this to be our third question, but I guess it, uh, I guess it has to be. Are they currently abducting us, <laughs> Michael? Mm, no. Great. Uh, so that's the end of the show. <laughs> But you do meet people who are absolutely convinced that that is happening to them. Yeah. So what could the explanation of that be then? And we asked Professor Chris French of Goldsmiths University. It's hard to say exactly how many, but certainly thousands of people around the world who claim that they have had contact with aliens and in many cases that they've been taken on board spaceships and they've been medically examined and have probes put in interesting places and all kinds of other stuff and so it's a it's a real challenge to figure out what's actually going on there now one possibility is that they really are being abducted by aliens but having looked at the evidence i'm not convinced about that and i think we're probably dealing with false memories they genuinely believe that they've been abducted by aliens but in actual fact i would argue it almost certainly didn't happen 
Now, it might be they have, say, an episode of missing time where they can't account for a period of maybe a, a couple of hours and they just don't know what they were doing during that time. Or it may be that they find mysterious scars on their body when they wake up in the morning and they've no idea where they came from. Or it may be an episode of sleep paralysis. I disappeared under the sea. And I would surface again. Suddenly I'm I would falling. start to drown again. I'm falling upright. And I would surface I was again. falling and twisting. Come up again. What typically happens in these cases is that people have this unusual experience that they they don't know how to explain and then something gives them the idea that maybe they have been abducted by aliens because all of these things are said to be symptoms of having been abducted by aliens and if you believe that that might be what happened to you you may well then be tempted to go for a session of hypnotic regression under the impression from too many Hollywood movies that hypnosis provides this magical key for unlocking hidden or repressed memories. Now, in actual fact, that's not the case. What hypnosis does, it provides the perfect context for the formation of false memories that feel very real, they can be very vivid, you can have all the kind of detailed imagery that goes with a, with a normal memory, but it's based on your own expectations bits of things you've seen in films, fantasy, imagination, all woven together. And as I say, what you end up with is a, is a memory or a, an apparent memory that feels very real, but actually it's a memory for something that never actually happened at all. So what Professor Chris is saying is there's a load of old bollocks. Yeah, yeah. Which is what I figured. But false memories are quite common and you see them in, in quite a lot of people and with different themes I suppose they're extremely common and they're extremely easy to induce and we all have them probably you know so we all have things that we re think we remember from our childhood that actually are just stories that we've made up and then you know they've been sort of you know been pulled in from something somebody once said about oh your, your granny saw you do this or and and so we all have this actually quite a false picture probably of some of the incidents of, of our childhood and um, the woman who's done the most research on this is a woman called Elizabeth Loftus at University of California Irvine and she she once had the um the tv presenter alan alder the guy from yeah, yeah. um he was coming to do a like a, a record a segment at her a campus and she sent him this questionnaire about his childhood and about uh, his food preferences just said oh you know I want you to be part of the study and then she phoned him up like before he came and said something about oh you know the computer analysis of of your answers to these questions shows that you actually ate a bad egg when you were a child and, and it's made you sick and she just literally made this up right and then he came and they must have just all been giggling because they went out for like a, a group picnic and they had a picnic with him on the lawn. And somebody asked him, oh, do you want, do you want an egg, Alan? And he said, no, I can't eat eggs. I had a bad one when I was a kid and it made me feel sick. <laughs> and oh, they all, Alan. obviously, they all corpse. <laughs> but, you know, proved their point about false memories is, is you can implant them. And, of course, this is a problem with, you know, witnesses in criminal cases. It's a problem with people who think they've been abused in, like, satanic abuse scandals were all shown to be false memory, you know, implanted by psychiatrists and psychologists who would make these suggestions when people are uh, in therapy. And people just take them on board. And if you're a certain kind of person, if you're sleep deprived, if you have a, a tendency to get really involved with like fantasy and stuff like that, 
And actually, it's been shown that if you imagine something happening, or you imagine yourself doing something enough times, it starts to feel like a real memory. And alien abductions are just one of those things. If you're into aliens and you like the stories about alien abductions, you're more likely to to think that you were abducted. And, and are these false memories all serving a, a, a purpose? Are they are they functional within people's lives? I think they create, they create a narrative, don't they? They they create this sort of sense of where your life might be quite dull and you not, haven't really got anything much to say about who you are and you don't feel like there's much meaning to your existence. Then, you know, being abducted by aliens, suddenly you've got a story to tell. You feel like, you know, they may have chosen you for a reason because you're special. You know, suddenly you've got purpose in life. This functional role of belief in abduction and extraterrestrial life uh, is something that we put to Professor Viren Swamy of Anglia Ruskin University. I think one of the big changes in the last 60 years, at least, has been the decline in religion. There's been a huge decline in the number of people who believe in mainstream religion. And it's quite possible that lots of people, once they've lost religion, want a new form of religion. And this belief in some kind of higher intelligence that will come and save humanity might fulfill that need for religion or a different form of religion the other possibility is that it gives you a sense of uniqueness it gives you a sense of purpose like if you for example believe that aliens are going to come and save you personally individually your life now suddenly has a lot of meaning has a lot of purpose i remember when i was a kid my my, my brother and i used to see this what i now realize was an airplane in the sky but it was fuzzy and because it was fuzzy, you could make up a narrative about what that actual, actual thing was. And we used to say, say it was a UFO, we've seen a UFO. And that gave you a kind of sense of purpose. And you kind of expand that to the kind of at a population level. Lots of people might be doing the same thing. They might be believing in something, seeing something in the sky because they need that need fulfilment. Basically, life is quite dull if you let science and facts determine everything. And actually, it's more fun to either believe in a supernatural being you call God or you get aliens and and you kind of wonder about their, you know, sending signals to us and communicating maybe through astral projections or something. You know, so all these kind of new agey kind of there's more dimensions to the universe. You know, we've all got friends who believe in this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, It just makes life seem a bit more interesting. Okay, let's uh, let's go through our three questions then. Uh, First up, we asked, are we alone? Well... Drake's equation says, no, there's loads of alien life. The Fermi paradox says, well, where are they? <laughs> what do you reckon? Well, I've actually seen Drake talk, and, and he thinks we're never going to encounter aliens. So although they might be out there, we're never going to see them. That's a bit of a cop-out, so cop isn't, out, it? isn't it, really? So, oh, they're out there, but they're hiding. <laughs> yeah, just a very long way away. Mm. Okay, well, that's disappointing. For me, I think they're definitely out there. By the way, that's intelligent aliens. So yeah. I think, you know, like bugs there's almost certainly bacteria on mars even now i would say but then if you say that then presumably the on other mars-like planets that are much older life will have got more sophisticated yeah if the right conditions were there but Mm. but you have to have the right conditions but there's so many planets yeah there will like we can't be so so there must be intelligent aliens out there somewhere but you know, statistics are just against us ever having any contact with them at all. Mm, but statistics are also against the idea that we're the only ones. Yes, for sure. Massively. Second question, what would they look like if we met them? They or might... even if we don't meet them, they yeah, still they look might... the same. <laughs> <laughs> they might be quite eerily mm-hmm. humanoid. Yeah, or, as you rightly point out, they might just be technology. Yeah. Which Robots. is kind of scarier. Yeah. I think, just little circuit boards. 
<laughs> little circuit balls with legs <laughs> and the third the third question is the only one that I think we have a definitive answer for we very rarely have definitive answers are they abducting us all together now no, no. and that really is, there's nothing more to say <laughs> of course they get are. over it life is like this just behave final report of the commercial starship Nostromo third officer reporting the other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Dr. Seth Shostak, Professor Simon Conway-Morris, Professor Viren Swamy and Professor Chris French. Too easy. Our best ever Sky Black Friday offer is here. Get Sky Q with the TV you love all in one place. An ultra-fast Sky Broadband for our best Wi-Fi all around your home. Plus, you can choose from Sky Sports or Sky Cinema. All for just €55 a month for 12 months. Don't miss Sky's best ever Black Friday offer. Just search Sky Black Friday. New customers only. Availability subject to location. Minimum term and further terms apply. For more info, see sky.ie slash speeds. Offer ends November 30th.